0: many summers ago my family went on vacation with my in-laws at the beach we rented a condo and we arrived at the condo a little early you know housekeeping was still you know cleaning up and so we couldn't check in just yet And so we waited in the parking lot for a while before the girls had a good idea. Why don't, uh, why don't we take the kids to the pool, which is near the condo, and let them go swimming um, while they wait um, to check us in? So that's what we did. We got all the kids in their swimsuits and slathered in sunscreen and uh, my daughter who was three or four years old went with her cousins to the pool i went with them and um, and they all just jumped in the pool and um, started swimming now i should say at this point that i was the responsible adult who was supervising the kids along with my brother-in-law the women were dealing with getting us checked in And moments after my daughter, Elisa, who again was three or four years old, moments after she jumped in, this question crossed my mind. Does Elisa know how to swim? Wait, she doesn't know how to swim. (laughs) So I jumped in after her in my street clothes and I rescued her from drowning. See, I forgot momentarily that she needed those floaty things on her arms before she got in the pool. I was probably only, it was probably only a split second before I realized my mistake, but in my head, it just seems a lot longer. It was scary, but of course Elisa was fine. I'm her father after all, I'm not gonna let her drown. I'm gonna do my best to keep her safe and to protect her. So here's the question that the disciples should have asked themselves in the midst of their storm. And it's a question I want us present day disciples to wrestle with in this sermon. If God is our loving heavenly father and his son Jesus loves us and has proven that he has miraculous power can we trust God to keep us safe in the midst of the many storms in our lives? After all, look at verse 22. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat to go before him to the other side. Jesus made the disciples go on this journey. This was Jesus's idea. Even though he was going to stay behind and dismiss the crowd, this crowd of 5,000 plus people whom he had just miraculously fed, and he was going to spend time in prayer while the disciples sailed across the lake. Here's a question. Was Jesus just a lousy meteorologist? I mean, it's true that he's already proven that he knows the future, that he can read people's thoughts, and that he obviously can work miracles. After all, he just finished a big miracle. But did Jesus not anticipate that in making the disciples go before him to the other side, The disciples were going to get into this terrible, life-threatening storm. Did this storm catch Jesus off guard? Did it surprise him? Of course not. Jesus knew, even if the disciples didn't know, he knew that he was sending them into a dangerous storm. If that's the case, The only thing we can conclude is that he was sending them there for a good reason. Last week, I said that the best thing that we can do when we're afraid is to remind ourselves of God's promises. And the disciples, um, they could have done that too here. I mean, look at verse 22 again. He made the disciples get into the boat and do what? Sail out to the middle of the lake get caught in a terrible storm and drown? No, that's not what Jesus told them. He told them to go before him to the other side. Jesus implies, therefore, that the disciples are actually going to make it to the other side and he will join them. So the disciples need to trust that Jesus is telling the truth and that he's going to keep his word. Of course, When we're facing the storms of life, trusting that Jesus is going to keep his word is difficult. It certainly can be. In part, I think this is because we think that if we're doing God's will, if we are in God's will, then we think we won't have to go through storms in the first place. I mean, sure... Maybe if we mess up, God will rescue us from the storm once we're in it. But if we had done this differently, or if we had done that, or if we had avoided doing this other thing, if we had as much faith as we're supposed to have, if we hadn't sinned in this way, then we wouldn't be in this mess. But today's scripture tells us otherwise. The disciples were in this storm not because they did something wrong, but because they did something right. They obeyed Jesus. They were doing God's will. Yet they were in the midst of this life threatening storm in spite of that fact. Recently, I've been reading and journaling through the book of Exodus. I haven't read it in a few years. Do you remember remember when God calls Moses out of the burning bush and he? He tells Moses that he wants him and his brother Aaron to go and confront Pharaoh and to demand, in the name of God, that Pharaoh set the Israelites free from slavery. Ten times Moses and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh with God's demand, let my people go so they can worship me. To let them go, or, or terrible consequences will happen. So God sends ten plagues on Egypt, each one progressively more frightening: blood in the water, frogs everywhere, locusts, deadly hail, among other things. And before long, the Pharaoh, he almost repents after each one of these plagues and and he tells Moses he says tell the Lord to take this plague away from us and I'll let your people go and worship God and Moses would pray and God would have mercy and take the plague away and then Pharaoh would change his mind and refuse to do what God commanded and the cycle repeated until the Passover when God struck down the first, firstborn of every Egyptian household. But, but think about it. Moses was doing precisely what God wanted him to do, what God called him to do. Moses was clearly doing God's will. He was clearly in God's will. Yet by all outward appearances, Moses still failed nine times out of ten to free Israel from slavery. My point is, just because we answer the Lord's call, just because we get on the boat and we sail out onto the water, like the Lord tells us, that doesn't mean that we're in for smooth sailing. On the contrary... (laughs) Besides, doesn't Jesus do some of his best work in our lives when we're afraid, when we're desperate, when, when our backs are against the wall, when we are far outside of our comfort zones? Well, he does for me. One of the best things that I've done in ministry, after all, indeed, one of the best things I've done in my life was to go to Kenya on two different trips. Kenya is in East Africa, and it's a place where our United Methodist Church is growing explosively. We simply can't start churches fast enough. We can't train and equip pastors fast enough. And um, on these two occasions, I went to Nakuru, Kenya, to teach church history. United Methodist theology and doctrine, liturgy, to a group of of highly effective, very enthusiastic, Bible-loving, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled pastors who couldn't begin to afford a seminary education on their own. So these classes I taught were a small step in the direction of a seminary education. My friend and seminary classmate Leslie was the one who told me about this opportunity in the first place. She called me out of the blue one day and told me that the large church where she worked was paying for her to go and teach these classes in Kenya. She was leaving later that month, but her church was sponsoring another trip later that year. She says, I think you should consider doing it, Brent. In fact, I'll recommend to the church that they send you next time because after all, you're brilliant. And of course I agreed with her. So she signed me up. I was scheduled to go to Kenya and I was anxious to hear how her trip went, uh, you know, a couple of months later when she got back. And here's what she told me on the phone. Brent, I have never been more afraid in my life. I thought I was going to die. I mean, in fairness to Leslie, Kenya is a desperately poor third world country by our standards. Life is, um, it's pretty rugged there. But Leslie described a few experiences that made her feel not only deeply uncomfortable, but afraid, even afraid for her life. She had a panic attack at one point, not to mention she was constantly worried about eating or drinking something that would make her sick or getting malaria or some other mosquito-borne illness. She said, it was so bad that I worried I would never see my kids again. Then she said, in almost the next breath, and I'm not exaggerating, I I don't think, but almost in the next breath, she said, By the way, I've got your airline ticket and you're scheduled to leave in three months. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go now. I'm afraid. I don't want to die. I told you last week, I'm a chicken but it was too late to back out of this trip. I was going to have to go, even though I was pretty certain it was going to kill me, but I was afraid. And to make matters worse, I went to um, Emory Midtown Hospital to get my vaccinations and, and prescriptions, whatever I would need to try to stay safe while I was in Kenya. <coughs> Excuse me. And the doctor talked to me about yellow fever. He said there weren't currently um, any cases of yellow fever in kenya but there were in neighboring somalia so just to be safe he'd recommend getting the vaccine for yellow fever and so i said well sure are there any possible side effects i should know about and um, maybe he didn't have the best bedside manner he certainly didn't know that i was a hypochondriac when he told me oh sure Um, It's a live virus vaccine, so there's a a possibility that you'll get yellow fever from the shot itself. Well, at that moment, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, just go ahead and reserve my hospital room now because I'm pretty confident I'm going to get yellow (laughs) fever. But of course I didn't. And, and Leslie's experience was not at all my experience. I'm not exaggerating when I say that those, those two trips over the course of 20 days were among the best things that I've done in my life. And they wouldn't have happened at all if I had simply stayed in my comfort zone and avoided all these things that make me afraid. Look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. One pastor puts it like this Jesus often comes to us disguised as the thing we're afraid of. Jesus often comes to us disguised as the thing we're afraid of. Isn't that wonderful? Oh my goodness, Uh, here the disciples were, terrified of what they thought was a ghost. It turned out to be Jesus all along. Jesus often comes to us disguised as the thing we're afraid of. Jesus came to me in Kenya. If you have your Bibles, and you should, look at verse 27. Jesus tells the frightened disciples, Take heart, it is I do not be afraid. Now, New Testament translators have a hard time with some words in this verse because what Jesus literally says here is, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. I am. In Greek, that is ego, I me. Jesus says this of himself elsewhere, especially in John's gospel in the New Testament, but it is the divine name of God that we find in the Old Testament, Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Jesus is revealing something profound about himself to the disciples. He is revealing to them that he is God, God in the flesh, and I know the disciples are afraid. I know they're skeptical. I know that they're filled with doubts. But, but we have some evidence here that they actually did get the message. Look at verse thirty-three. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." These disciples were faithful Jews, and. You know, they were not going to break the first two of the Ten Commandments by worshiping someone who was not God. They would not worship a human being. And they wouldn't worship Jesus unless they were convinced that he was God. I mean, there are two places in the book of Revelation where the Apostle John is talking to an angel, and it's a pretty, the angel is pretty glorious in his own way. So much so that John falls down on the ground and tries to worship the angel. And two times the angel says, you you can't do that. What are you doing? I'm a creature just like you. You can't worship me. So the disciples wouldn't have worshipped Jesus unless they believed he was God. And Jesus wouldn't have received their worship unless he was God. Suddenly, the storm didn't seem quite so scary or tempestuous or life-threatening. After all, God is in charge of this and every other storm. God created the laws of physics, which the wind and the waves must obey. He could merely give the word and bring the storm to an immediate halt. And now this same God is somehow walking toward the disciples on the water, and he's now on board the boat. Do you think that these disciples grew closer to Jesus as a result of this experience? Of course they did. And it happened because of this storm. Because let's face it, nothing brings us closer to Jesus Than a good storm in our life, right? In fact, Peter prayed that this storm would bring him closer to Jesus. Now you say, Peter doesn't pray here. Oh, yes, he does. Twice, actually. He literally asks Jesus to do something for him. Asking Jesus to do something is a prayer. And his first prayer is in verse 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Command me to come to you. Peter often gets criticized for being impulsive and perhaps asking for something here that's kind of frivolous, like, hey, Jesus, I want to walk on water like you. That looks like a lot of fun that looks like more fun than a wave runner. So how about giving me the power uh, to walk on water while you're out there? Let me do it. But that's not what Peter prays for. His prayer is not, let me walk on water like you. His prayer is, let me be closer to you. Let me be with you. And Jesus says, Yes to this prayer. Indeed, I believe that Jesus says yes to a prayer like that every time we pray it. And notice that even in failing and doubting and beginning to sink, Peter grew closer to Jesus. He was closer to Jesus when Jesus picked him up in his arms and rescued him from drowning than he was before he started to sink. So through this storm, Jesus answered Peter's prayer and brought Peter closer to him. I'm reading a book right now by a fearless evangelist from New Zealand named Ray Comfort. The book is good so far. Um, I haven't finished it, but, but in the book, Comfort complains about how contemporary preachers have watered down the gospel. They avoid talking about difficult topics like sin and hell. And instead, they make the gospel all about what Jesus can do for you. How he can make your life better. How he can make you happy. Indeed, how he has, how God has a wonderful plan for your life. And Comfort asks, what about those early Christian martyrs who were fed to the lions? What about Christian martyrs today? After all, there are more Christians being persecuted and killed for their faith right now than at any point in history. With all that in mind, Comfort wonders, aren't we... um, exaggerating or overselling God's wonderful plan at the expense of the cost of discipleship? And as I was reading these words, I felt convicted. Uh Uh-oh, I thought. I often preach that God has a wonderful plan for our lives. I preach that Jesus can make us happy in a lasting sort of way. I preach that Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul like nothing and no one else. I've experienced this kind of happiness, this kind of joy, this kind of contentment, this kind of satisfaction for myself, and I want others to know about it. Of course, I also preach often about sin and hell, but still, I take his point. Have I overemphasized happiness and joy and satisfaction in Christ at the expense of these difficult doctrines? Am I off balance? Well, I thought about it and I don't think so because the deep and lasting happiness that God wants to give us, which comes only through a personal relationship with Christ, made possible through his atoning death on the cross for our sins, without which we will go to hell and be separated from God for eternity. This is not possible. Um, This happiness is not possible on our own terms. If it were, it would be insane to talk about God sending storms in our lives, which often cause pain and suffering and fear. Because we think that storms are incompatible with happiness. They disrupt our happiness. Happiness, as we define it, is smooth sailing. Indeed, happiness is the absence of storms. That's what the world tells us. But the world is wrong. God's word says that deep and lasting happiness is knowing Jesus. And that knowing Jesus is the very best thing there is in the world. So God wants to give us more of the best thing there is. God wants to give us more of Jesus. He wants us to grow closer to Jesus. He wants us to know Jesus better. That is our life's greatest treasure, Therefore, if God's plan for our lives includes sending us storms from time to time in order that through them we can have more of Jesus, then God's plan is truly wonderful. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 8. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tocoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Toccoa First. We have live, in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.